occasionally it's, it's fun to look up Guinness World Records because uh, there's some pretty amazing ones out there. Uh, just a few that I came across this week. Uh, the longest record for holding your breath. This was qualified willingly, okay? So I don't know about the other records of holding breath not willingly, but um, this is willingly. So this was somebody who volunteered to do this. They were not being suffocated or choked to death. Uh, the record is 24 minutes and 37 seconds of holding your breath. Don't try that here because we don't want anybody to pass out in the room um, during the sermon because I don't think you're going to make it to 24 minutes and 38 seconds, which is what you would need to set the world record. Uh, fastest land speed record. Some of you have fast cars. I drive a hybrid. Some of you have cars that go really fast and zoom, zoom and things like that. Well, the fastest land speed record is 763 miles per hour. Also, don't try that tonight on your way home. You're not going to break it. That was on like the salt flats in uh, Nevada. I mean, it's, it's insane. The uh, 763 miles per hour. Um, fastest 100 meter hurdles. You're going, well, that's not our Guinness world record. That's an Olympic world record. Nope, wait for it. While wearing swim fins. It's a thing. It's a thing. Uh, how fast do you think you could run the 100-meter hurdles? Like, what do, you th- what do you think? Again, not just a 100-meter sprint, 100-meter hurdles, okay? So you're jumping over these things. I- I'm going to be happy with, like, 20 seconds, okay? Happy with 20 seconds. World record with swim fins on over the hurdles, 14 seconds in 80.82. 14.82 seconds. That's insane. With, like, flippers on, jumping over things, ran 100 meters in 14.82 seconds. You want to try that tonight? Just invite us to watch is all I'm going to ask um, on that. But these, though they're weird, are impressive feats, uh, especially the, the swim fins one. They're things that leave us impressed and that make us say, wow, wow, that would have been something to witness, to see, to watch. And yet, what do any of those have to do with you? Nothing. It doesn't impact your life at all whatsoever. And yet you're impressed by it and even moved to some awe over it. Let me ask you, does what Jesus has done for us, does that do that for you? Does that lead you to that same sense of wow? Does that lead you to that same sense of awe and wonder? Does that cause you to be impressed? Are you as impressed with your Savior as you are with some joker wearing swim fins jumping over hurdles? Because I'll tell you what, what your Savior's done for you is far more impactful than what any of those people have done for you. Far more impressive than what any of those people were able to accomplish. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following. Pick up with me in verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12, where our writer says this, For you have not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In these verses, the passage before us tonight, our author uses... Uh, these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, as he talks about it here, uh, to talk about um, the, the two covenants. And the reason he uses the two mountains is, well, those are, are the, the, where the, the two covenants were formed. Uh, the first one, Sinai here, he begins by describing what took place there. And if you hearken back to, remember back to uh, the early parts of this year in doing your daily Bible reading in the the second book that we get to, which is Genesis and then Exodus, right? Exodus chapter 19. This is what our author was recalling. And so in Exodus chapter 19, we read this. We read initially here, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate. That word consecrate means set them apart. Get them ready. Make them holy. Sanctify them, right? Consecrate them. Devote them for what's about to happen today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. 
For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So there you have this scene that's being set that God is telling Moses about that's about to happen. And this in Exodus chapter 20 becomes the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he's telling Moses, get the people ready, but tell them, don't even come near the mountain. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is going to come down on the mountain, and the mountain is going to be so holy that even if the, the Israelites were to touch the edge of the mountain, the very bottom of the mountain, the holiness of God would consume them, and they would be guilty, and they would have to die on the spot. So this is a serious ordeal that God is, is telling Moses to prepare the Israelites for. Well, Moses goes down the mountain and, and talks to Israel. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. And here it is. It's shown up here. Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Read that line again. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The whole mountain trembled under the glory and the holiness of God. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, by the way, this is not an Israelite blowing the trumpet. This is an angelic trumpet that is sounding here. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Exodus 19, 16. So that all the people in the camp trembled. They were terrified of this encounter with the holy God frightened, terrified that they were going to be consumed by this holy God. So much so that look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Moses comes down. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. They stood far off from God. They, were, they didn't want to draw near to God. They, they were getting as, as far away as possible. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And we sing songs about wanting to feel the power of God shake the presence and shake the room. Do you? Because they experienced it. And they were frightened to death. They were terrified of it. So much so that they told Moses, Moses, you go talk to God for us. We don't want to have anything to do with him. And that was out of fear. But what does our author say back in Hebrews chapter 12? You have not come to this mountain. You, church, have not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come to what can be touched. Your reality, church, is different. We'll get to it. It's a spiritual mountain that you have come to. And that your experience of God is far different than their experience of God. But in order for us to appreciate our experience of God, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the, of the, the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we have to do the, the best job that we possibly can to, to tremble alongside them under the weight of the glory of God. He goes on, he says, you have not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire. We just read about it in Exodus. That the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, was, was blazing. It was on fire and the smoke was going up. Uh, like a, a, a smoke from a kiln. There was darkness and gloom. Why? Because there was a tempest or a storm. And so the, the, just the atmosphere is terrifying. There's this trumpet that nobody knows where the sound is coming from, and it's just getting louder and louder and louder and louder as the people are gathered at the foot of the mountain. And then there's this voice, this voice that speaks like thunder. Oh, and there's the charge that, hey, even if a little mountain goat happens to wander up and touch the side of the mountain, that goat needs to be killed. Lest any humans touch the mountain, they should also be killed. This is what they came to. It was a terrifying ordeal, so much so that they were wanting to be far away from God. 
They wanted to keep their distance from him. So much so, look at verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 12. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses even said, I tremble with fear. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees the people in the camp celebrating and the golden calf is there and they're sinning against God. It says, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you. Moses was terrified of what God was going to do to the people of Israel because they had made this golden calf while he was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Overwhelming, terrifying, weighty, glorious, powerful encounter with God. By the way, if you're wondering where you would be in this situation, you and I would be taking cover under whatever rock we could find. We would have been right there with Israel, saying, hey, Moses, you go. You go. Don't, don't let God speak directly to us because we're terrified over what may happen if that were to be the case. See, God was revealing himself to his people as holy and powerful and just and righteous and making it abundantly clear that anyone who wished to have fellowship with him had to also be holy and righteous as he was. That's why what follows this appearance of the Lord descending on Mount Sinai is the giving of the law. Because he's aware that the people are going to see the mountain shaking and the fire going up and the smoke rising from the mountain and hearing this voice of thunder. And he knew that they were going to be terrified, wondering how could we ever draw near to God because we're trying to get as far away from him as we possibly can. And the answer, at least initially under this covenant, was Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy And you say, well, God, what does it look like for me to be holy? And Moses says, here's the law. Can you imagine the weight of that? And I I know it's hard for us because we sit here today as those that are in Christ, if you are in Christ. And we'll get to to talking about that momentarily, but to, to fully appreciate what you have in Jesus, we need to feel the weight of what they must have felt in this experience what the Israelites must have felt, what the Jewish people must have felt for thousands of years until Christ showed up. Point number one tonight is just that feel, the weight of the first covenant. We've been talking a lot in the book of Hebrews about the the covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And I I just want you, because our author wants you to, to, to feel the weight of this first covenant. Just the overwhelming expectation that if you want a relationship with God, man, you've got to be what? You've got to be perfect. You've got to be holy as he is holy. Here's the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. You shall and you shall not. And if you want a relationship with the Lord, make sure you shall the good things and shall not the bad things. I don't know if you've ever been pulled over by a cop. I've had the experience a few times. Not recently. A few times, though, in my past. It's not a fun experience. The blue and reds show up in the, the rear view mirror. And a lot of times for me, I knew it was coming. Because I saw the guy on the side of the road when I drove past him. And then you're just che- You guys know. You've checked your rear view mirror to watch and go, is he rolling out? Is he coming for me? And a few times he was coming for me. And I pull over. And look, if you're smart, okay, let me just give you a little pro tip here. If you haven't been pulled over yet, if you are smart, you feel the weight of this moment. Okay, both hands on the steering wheel, looking straight ahead, waiting for him to come knock on the, well, you better have the window, go ahead and roll that down ahead of time before the cop gets up there. And when he walks up there and and asks you for your license and registration, move slowly. If you don't already have it out, move slowly, hand it to him. Here you go, sir. Okay, I'm going to go run your plates and I'll, I'll be right back. All right, thank you, sir. Have a nice day, sir. Is there anything you need? Do you need a bottle of water, sir? Anything I can get you, sir? Yes, sir. No, sir. He comes back and hands you a ticket, right? He's making your life miserable. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate this. Thank you for being so kind. And then you get in your car and he gets back in his car and you drive like a grandma until you're sure that you're safe for a little while. You definitely don't want to make the cop mad in that situation. Y'all, Israel at this point had already made the Lord mad on multiple occasions. Remember coming out of the, the wilderness, the grumbling and complaining along the way? 
them throwing their hands up going, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We could have died there. Were there not enough graves in Egypt, God, that you decided to bring us out here to die under the leadership of this Moses guy? What are you thinking? Remember that? So they had already made God mad, and they had seen some pretty amazing things, right? They had seen Korah's rebellion and how that ended up with the, the ground opening up and swallowing everybody. But y'all, this was the first time they had really experienced the full power of God's holiness, where they had seen God's glory, albeit in a veiled expression, in a way that left them terrified. Terrified. The glory of God shaking a mountain and the voice of God sounding like thunder. I want you to think for just a minute as we think about feeling the weight of this, what if that's the only version of God that we knew? What if the Bible ended at Deuteronomy? Well, DBR would be a lot easier. Just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're done. Let's, let's move on. Some of you guys still wouldn't get through Leviticus, though. <laughs> but what if we were still bound by this law that Moses received on Mount Sinai? What if the only way for us to draw near to God was to be holy as he is holy, by keeping the commandments of the law? What if our perception of God was still one of fear and separation and distance? The tragedy is, for some of you tonight, it may be that that is still your conception of God. That when you think about God, you think about God as scary. You think about God as uh, separated from you. You think about him as, as distant from you. You, you, you don't have a con concept of, of a relationship with him. And you can't imagine what it would be like to have a relationship with this God. Because this God in your mind is a God who is wrathful and angry. And he's wrathful and angry at you. This God that you conceive of in your mind is a God who's judgmental. Who's constantly looking at you like a disappointed father pointing out all of the things that you continually do wrong and the things that you continually mess up. And that fuels your view of this God. And you think, I don't want anything to do with him. At best, your view of God is abstract and fuzzy. Here's the good news, y'all. The Mount Sinai God is not the only version of God that we know. The God that we worship is the same God. He is immutable. He is unchanging, right? Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So God has not changed. What has changed? Well, his covenant relationship has changed with us because instead of leaving us under the weight of the first covenant, he's introduced a key change in all of this. And that key change in all of this is his son, Jesus who's changed everything for us by opening up a way for us to have a relationship with God even though we're not holy as he's holy. None of us are. He's opened up a way for us to have a relationship with this God even though this God has not changed at all. That his holiness is still just as holy. His power is still just as powerful. His glory is still just as glorious as it was on Mount Sinai. But now we get a relationship with him because of Jesus. And we'll talk about the, that a little bit more as we go along. But the writer's been talking about this, y'all, literally the, the entire way through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. We've studied these passages already. Hebrews 2, therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest. What does a high priest do? Intercedes for us, right? in the service of God, in order that Jesus might make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, that Jesus might satisfy the wrath of God against us, the just anger of God against our sins. For because, verse 18, he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he now is able to help those who are being tempted. So the writer there was saying, look, you have a Savior who has suffered for you and now can help you draw near to God. Because he has satisfied God's wrath against you. He's met the demands of the old covenant for you. And he's paid for your failures to meet up to the demands of the old covenant. 
Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We've talked about this already as well, right? Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What were the Israelites doing back in Sinai? They were trying to get as far away from God as possible. And our author is saying, let us draw near to this God. Why? What changed? What changed is Jesus changed. Jesus changed our standing before the Father. He changed the way we relate to the Father. He now intercedes on our behalf before the Father. And that's why we can draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 6, again, we studied this passage too. We have this as a sure, a certain, and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now you have a high priest who is permanently in the presence of the Lord. That's what it means that he's gone behind the curtain. And he's there doing what? He's there interceding on our behalf with the sacrifice that's a once for all sacrifice. That's himself. So he's dealt with the demands of the old covenant for us. So we no longer have to fear the punishment of the old covenant. One more, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Again, we've studied this. The former priests, there were many. In number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing, continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, notice the language here, draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See y'all, the author's about to tell us Because he started out, right? You have not come to this, that mountain that can be touched. You have not come to to Sinai, to the blazing fire, to the shaking mountain, to the storm clouds and the doom and the gloom and the, the tempest. You have not come to the voice that shakes like thunder, the mountains and the lightning. You have not come to that, church, because you've come to something better. All because of Jesus. But y'all, if we're going to appreciate what's better, we have to first recognize how heavy it must have been to live under the first covenant. But look at verse 22. You have not come to this, church, but, but you have come to a different mountain, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we've come to Mount Zion. Well, what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion in scripture originally was the the home of the Jebusites. If you've been tracking with our DBR, uh, Israel entered into the promised land. The Jebusites were one of those groups that they did not drive out. They held camp in Jairus at the time, which turned into Jerusalem. They were living on Mount Zion. And Joshua and the the Israelites did not drive them out. In fact, they wouldn't be driven out until the time of David later on. But this is the genesis of Mount Zion. David then conquers the the Jebusites and takes over the, the mount there in Jairus, the city. And it becomes known then eventually as the city of David because David was the one to establish it as his home base and to take it for possession by God's people. Later on, one of David's offspring, King Solomon, would choose to build the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. The temple became the the permanent dwelling place, so to speak, of God. It was no longer a tent that would travel from city to city and and place to place, but now there was a centralized, permanent, brick-and-mortar building where the the Holy of Holies would reside, and that was the the Jewish temple. In the book of, of Revelation, we read in Revelation chapter 14, uh, that, that this is part of God's plan for the eschatological future as well. In other words, the end times. That it says in, in Revelation 14, 1, that in Mount Zion, Jesus, along with the 144,000, are going to be standing on Mount Zion. So Mount Zion has a future role to play as well. It really, at the end of the day, anticipates for us, and what our author is driving at is it, it, it anticipates the, the heavenly Mount Zion. It anticipates the new Jerusalem because Mount Zion came to be a a 
catch term. Uh, uh, yep, don't know words anymore. Just going to quit. Just going to stop. It came to be that phrase that represented uh, the dwelling place of God with man. And it came to be the, the ideal that that ultimately is going to be yet in the future. And so there's the idea of the heavenly Mount Zion, right? Well, the author said, you have not come to what can be touched. You've not come to an earthly mountain like Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. But he's not talking about the mount where we can go still today and visit Jerusalem. He's talking about the heavenly Mount Zion, which is where God would deliver his message. Mount Zion is also contrasted by the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. And we read this in Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 and following. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women, he says, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Okay, that's the old covenant. Bearing children for slavery. Slavery to what? Slavery to sin. Slavery under the law. She, he says, is Hagar. Now, Mount, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Then he goes on in verse 26 and following. He says, but Jerusalem above is free. Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem. She is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, not slavery anymore. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman, the, the Old Testament covenant, the old covenant, the law shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And if your head is spinning on that, I get it. I just want you to understand that this is something that is common in scripture to contrast Sinai with the, the Mount Zion, with the, the new Jerusalem. And the idea that the new Jerusalem represents the new covenant. And so the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 and our author in Hebrews 12 contrast Zion and Sinai. So what does he say in the passage, though, about Zion? Well, he says it's the city of the living God. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, there's a reference there to this city. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now we find that Zion is the city of the living God. He also calls it there the, the heavenly Jerusalem. So if we're wondering, is this physical Mount Zion? No, because it's, it's the heavenly Jerusalem as it's referred to there. Revelation 21.2, John sees Jerusalem coming down from heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. He also sees innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal gathering would have been, uh, they're partying, they're celebrating, they're joyous in this occasion. Think back to the, the early parts of Hebrews where he's contrasted Jesus and the angels there, talking about how Jesus is better than the angels in those opening chapters. He also goes on, he says, you've also come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Here in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. This is a picture of the church that is, is going to be there. This is a picture of the church that's going to be gathered together. And he says, and you come to God, the judge of all. That we are, are coming before the same God that was there on Mount Sinai. He's, he's here in Mount Zion as well. And then he says, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's some question here, but it's possible that this is reaching back to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. After talking about all the Old Testament saints, he said, These, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So it's, it's very possible that this is, the, this is Abraham and Noah and Isaac and all of the Old Testament saints that he's run through and others from chapter 11 that are now made perfect with this heavenly Jerusalem. But then he gets to the punchline when he says, and to Jesus. I'm a little bit behind here, aren't I? Let me catch up. To Jesus. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is one who enacts it. And it was by his blood that he enacted it, which is why we've also come to the sprinkled blood, right? Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through 14, 23 through 28, talks about the blood of Christ as the cleansing, uh, the, the consecrating element there. 
of his sacrifice. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to his blood, his sprinkled blood. Notice that that speaks a better word than Abel. It's a weird line there. What is, where did Abel come from? Well, you remember, Abel was the first human that was what? Murdered by his brother Cain. And in the scripture, it says the blood of Abel was crying out to the Lord. What was it crying out for? Justice. Condemnation. Judgment. What does the blood of Jesus speak for us? Mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. Cleansing. Life. Freedom. Do you see how the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? So you've got Sinai and Zion. If you just have those two descriptions, Sinai and Zion, according to Hebrews chapter 12, if you just read through those two lists, which mountain would you choose? Which mountain would you choose? My guess is Zion. That would be my guess. And y'all, here's the thing. I, I, I don't know that we fully understand the blessings that we have in Jesus the way that the early church did. The way that the, 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 the Christians, remember he's writing to Christians who used to be Jews. And so they would have had a very keen appreciation for the old covenant and the new covenant. Because at one time they were living under the old covenant still. And then they heard the good news of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The once for all sacrifice. The sacrifice that put an end to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The, the sacrifice that fulfilled the law. That met all of its obligations and, and paid for all of the sins. And now they, they have responded to that. And imagine the relief and the freedom that they experienced under the new covenant. That's something that I feel like we miss out on. But let's try to feel some of that tonight. Point number two is feel the freedom of the new covenant. The weight of the old covenant, yes, but the freedom of the new covenant. The good news of the new covenant. Rob Gronkowski, probably you did not imagine those two words would be coming out of my mouth next, did you? New covenant, Rob Gronkowski, right? What? Rob Gronkowski is a hard name to say, and I'm done saying it. Anyways, RG, he uh, was a football player. Still is, well, he's retired now, I think. Who knows? You can't trust anybody anymore. But he was a, a good NFL tight end, great NFL tight end. Uh, in 11 seasons, he had 137 wins and 40 losses. So he almost won 100 more games in the NFL than he lost, which is saying quite a bit, right? This is not like baseball where you play 162 games in a season. This is football where you play 16 or 17 in a season and then playoffs if, uh, if your team is good, which his team was good because they made the playoffs every single one of the seasons that he played. Oh, and they won four Super Bowls in the, the mix of all that too. Not to take anything away from Gronk's talent, but I don't know that he appreciated the success that he enjoyed the way that somebody who's played for a losing team appreciates it when they finally get to the the place of having a winning season and they get to win the, the Super Bowl. Like I think about John Elway, a guy drafted in 1983 who didn't win his first Super Bowl until 1997. His appreciation of that Super Bowl trophy versus Gronk's appreciation of his fourth Super Bowl trophy, vastly different. Vastly different. Gronk never knew anything but winning seasons, winning teams, going to the playoffs, winning four Super Bowls. And eventually, you come to expect it so much that it's like, eh, eh, yeah, it's great. I'd rather win a Super Bowl than not. But do you really appreciate it? Okay, listen, this is going to be something else you didn't expect to hear. All of us in this room are Rob Gronkowski. You have never known the old covenant, obligations, and laws, and the weight of that. Some of you have, have tried to live that way in spite of never being a, a Jewish person in, in first century Israel. But, but you and I have never known the, the weight of it to be able to appreciate the freedom that we have in the new covenant in Christ. The way that this group that, that the author is writing to would have been able to appreciate that. But y'all, we should appreciate it that much. We should appreciate it that much. Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, if you will. It's to the left. 
your left and mine too. But I went that way on left. And if you're looking at me, you're thinking that's to the right. My left, your left. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 says this. Oh man, what do I read? I don't know. All of it. No, I won't. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? He's talking to people that are going, grace is amazing, right? Yes, it is amazing. He says, by no means. Well, why not, Paul? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we have been identified with Christ Jesus. We were identified with, baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And we read that and then we yawn and we th think, yeah, that's, that's nice. Yo, that's amazing that we have been united to Christ and now you have freedom from sin. You don't have to sin. You've been set free. You can present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Yo, think back to Sinai. What was the law intended to do? What was its purpose? Romans 7, 7 says this. Look, if the law wasn't there, I wouldn't know what sin is. Galatians 3.22 actually says that the scriptures, that, that the law imprisoned us under sin. And so what was the law to do? Well, it was to remind us of sin, to, to point out to us what sin is, to imprison us in a state of helplessness so that we would realize that we can't be justified on our own, which brings us to the ultimate point of the Sinai, Sinai covenant in the law, which was it was to point us to who? To Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's not like God had a different game plan. It was like, oh, man, Holy Spirit, Jesus, holy huddle, really quick. Come on, let's call a timeout. Do we have any of those left? Let's call a timeout. This law thing's not working. We got to figure something else out. Who's going to go down and die? All right, let's draw straws. That's not how it worked. No, Acts chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was delivered over to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's always been about Jesus. The Old Testament law was given the 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 descent upon Mount Sinai and the shaking of the mountain was meant to make people go, we can't be near this God. And guess what? That's the point. Left to ourselves, we can't be near this God. We need somebody to mediate for us, to intervene for us, to intercede for us, which is what Hebrews has been all about to this point. It's been all to get us to Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after that promise, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. So in other words, the Mosaic covenant, Mount Sinai, doesn't undo the Abrahamic covenant. When God said, Abraham, through one of your descendants, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That descendant would be Jesus. Jesus was on the scene way before Sinai and God's plan. And he's saying it doesn't nullify that. It doesn't make it void. Verse 18. He says, for if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so you're tracking with me right now. He's talking about the, the, the law and Jesus. And he's saying the giving of the law does not annul the Abrahamic covenant. 
which Paul had called the gospel earlier in, in Galatians. And so now he keeps going in verse 19 through 24. He says, why then the law? Anybody else wonder that at this point? Well, then why the law? It was added because of transgressions, because of sin, until the offspring, until Jesus should come, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But, verse 22, I alluded to this a minute ago, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That word guardian can also mean tutor. The law was our tutor. The law was our guide. The law was our teacher. To do what? To point us to Jesus. To say, hey, you can't do this. You can't do this. Romans 7, 7, the law is there to do what? To show me that I am a sinner and that I need Jesus. And so the law was put in place so that people would go, we can't do this. We need somebody else. And God the Father is going, yes, that's exactly it. And you're going to get that in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 26 Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So the purpose of the law was never to make one justified in the sight of God. The purpose of the law was never to get us from being separated from God to being close with God. That was never the purpose of the law. It couldn't do it. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Why was he needed to be a propitiation? Because the law did its job. It imprisoned us and said, you can't do it. You fall short and you are a sinner. You need a propitiation. You need your sins paid for. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Y'all, let me ask you, does this move the needle for you at all? Like, this is amazing. You couldn't do it, and God said, I know you can't do it. Jesus is gonna do it for you. He's gonna satisfy the demands of the law by living a perfectly righteous and obedient life. And then, you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna credit that to you. And what's he going to do for you? He's going to take your sin, all of your shortcomings that the law has revealed, he's going to take that and put it on himself. And he's going to pay for those things on the cross with his life. Do we feel the freedom of the new covenant? And understand it's free for us, but it was not free. That it cost the father, the son. And you think, well, yeah, he rose again. He still, the Father, exhausted all of his wrath, his divine, holy, powerful, suffering-inducing wrath on his son and killed him. So what does all this mean for you with your view of God? We talked about it at the beginning. Maybe your view of God is that he's distant, separate, that he's angry, that he's wrathful, that he's judgmental, that he's condemning. Well, now when you understand the new covenant, when you understand that Jesus has been provided for you, God is no longer distant to you. He no longer has to be wrathful and angry. Why? Because Jesus stepped in the way and absorbed all of that wrath for you and for me. God is no longer a condemning and judgmental Father, he's no longer a disappointed father. He's a, a loving father now. Why? 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 How? Because of Jesus. Because of the new covenant brought by Jesus' blood for you and for me. Feel the freedom of the new covenant. Y'all, let me just take a minute and just plead with you. If you're still trying to approach God under the weight of the old covenant, please Give that up tonight. 
If you're still trying to make God happy with you by being good enough and obedient enough and holy enough and righteous enough, I just read in Romans chapter 3 that the law can never do that for you. That that is like spinning your wheels. You will never get any closer to God by just trying to be a more godly person. You can't do it apart from Jesus. And the new covenant is available to you tonight. If you will give up that self-righteousness of saying, I can be good enough for God to be happy with me. If you will lay that down. If you will see that Jesus has died for your sins and paid the penalty for your sins. If you will see that and trust that that took place for you. And if you will repent from those sins. In other words, you're saying, I'm done living for myself. I'm surrendering everything to the Lord. I'm going to live for him from this point forward. Because my righteousness is not my own, it's Christ. If you will do that tonight, you can escape the weight of the old covenant and experience the freedom of the new covenant. Which brings us to verse 25. See that you do not refuse him. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. There's a plea and a warning here. There's a parallel between verse 25 and verse 19 that we don't necessarily pick up right away in our English translations. Hebrews 12, 19, the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers, here it is, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The word beg there is the same Hebrew word, or Greek word rather, that's translated down in verse 25 as refuse him who is speaking. So the, the, the Israelites refused God who was speaking to them. They didn't want anything to do with him. They, they wanted distance. They wanted somebody else in between them and God. Don't let God speak to us anymore. The author is saying, don't do the same thing with God who is now speaking to you from Mount Zion, from the heavenly Jerusalem. For if they did not escape when they refused him who, is, who warned them on earth, what he's talking about there, we're not exactly sure whether or not that was the, the generation of the golden calf who were condemned and some of them died and, and they all had to drink water that had golden calf dust ground up and, and sprinkled in it, which... Not fun. Or if this is just Israel in general who refused God at Mount Sinai because of the rest of their history where they rebelled against God and eventually God sent them into exile. All that to say, look, if, if God responded and punished them for refusing him, then he said, how much more is he going to act that way for us if we refuse him who is speaking to us right now? Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Do not refuse the son. He describes the scene again in Mount Sinai in verse 26. Those who were at Sinai saw the mountain shake, but those who reject Christ will see the universe shaken to its foundations. That he's going to shake not only the, the, the mountains, but the heavens themselves. You fast forward to the book of Revelation and it talks about the, the judgment of God where the mountains, people are begging the mountains to fall on them lest they suffer under the wrath of God. The earthquakes, the, the famines, the disease, the sickness, the war. And that's not to say anything of the, the return of Jesus in Revelation 19 with all of his armies gathered behind him. And then we see in verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the city of God coming down where we will dwell forever and ever with the Lord. What's our proper response then? If we're saying, okay, I don't want to refuse him. 
What do I need to do? Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's that warning there at the end. But again, it's that admonition. Let's be thankful and worship the Lord. That's what he wants from you tonight. Not just tonight, but for the rest of your life. Reflecting on the new covenant, how great it is. You're going, okay, what, what should I do? God, what, what do you want from me now that I, I'm in the new covenant? And this is amazing, and this is uh, wonderful, and it's so awesome. What, what should I do? Point number three tonight. Ensure you've responded in obedience. Ensure you've responded to the good news of the new covenant in obedience. And that's why we started with, and that's why the author started with the old covenant before he got to the new covenant. Because when we see the two contrasted, we can't help but feel grateful for what God has done for us with the new covenant. We can't help but want to worship him for what he's done for us in the new covenant. When we see the power and grandeur and majesty of God, we can't help but want to praise him with awe and fearful reverence of him. Which is exactly what we're supposed to do. Friday mornings in, in my house mean donuts. Some of you are going to show up this Friday morning, aren't you? <laughs> and it has for a long time. And, and I, I always get donuts for my kids. And sometimes I don't remember what day it is until the twins come down. They're like, Daddy, where are the donuts? I'm like, oh, we got to go. But what I'll do is uh, I used to take them to Dunkin' Donuts. And then I got wise on Dunkin'. And I'm done with Dunkin'. So boycott Dunkin'. Um, it's not, I'm not sponsored by them. But there's this place over in Lake Forest, or Mission Viejo, rather, off of uh, Marguerite called Royal Donuts and Burgers. Yes, yes, Nathan knows what's up. If you guys have been to Royal Donuts and Burgers, you know what's up. Um, and so I take my kids there, and it's like a 15-minute drive further, but they're better. They're just better. And they'll, they just, they're friendly people. They give my twins free donut holes when they see them in the backseat of the car, and then I steal them from them after we drive away. I'm like, those are dads. I drove. It's your gas tax. No, I'm just kidding. But why do, I, why do I go get donuts for my kids on Friday? Is it because I want them to be little chubby pudge balls as they get older? <laughs> I mean, if you guys have seen Luke, Luke could stand to put a few pounds on. So there's that. No, why do I do that? Well, because I, I love them, right? I, I love them, and this is a treat for them. It's something that they get to have a memory of, hopefully in the future, of donuts with dad on Fridays, right? But all the while, at the same time, Y'all, if my kids never expressed any gratitude over that, and if they just acted entitled and just were like, oh yeah, here's the donuts, and didn't ever think about where those donuts come from, didn't ever think about the sacrifice of, of getting in the car and driving before they get out of bed, didn't think about you know, what it costs, which is not much, but still didn't think about the cost to get those donuts. If they never were grateful, if they never said thank you, if they never were excited about having them, I would stop. I would stop. Because part of the purpose is to bring that joy to them that overflows in gratitude. How much more should we be grateful for what God has done for us in Christ? Think of the cost. Think of the, the investment. Think about the pain and the suffering of Jesus on our behalf, right? Is that any wonder that the author says, therefore, let us be grateful? Let us be grateful. Let us not be entitled to anything. And here's something that I find, y'all. I find that our overall, our gratitude wanes the further away we get from our conversion, the further we get from the moment that we were saved by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the further we get away from that, the more entitled to the blessings of God we feel and the less grateful we feel. And we spend much more time grumbling and complaining about our lives. Our lives. Our lives. Think about it. 70, 80, 90 years compared to eternity that God has purchased for you. 
in Christ. This is why Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Pastor Mike talked about it a little bit this morning in the message when he talked about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And Paul said, yeah, I prayed that it would be removed. But you know what? We don't have a letter from Paul complaining about how much he had to suffer this pain, this thorn in the flesh and about how miserable it made him and about how hard his life was because he had a thorn in the flesh. He glances off of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in order to do what? To get to, or 2 Corinthians, sorry, 11. To get to what? To get to magnifying the power of God in his life. They're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We spend far too much time talking about how miserable our life is and way too little time talking about how amazing our salvation in Christ is. Paul repeated the theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Some of y'all are just on the verge of losing heart. You're like, okay, I'm ready to, to give up. My life is too hard. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There it is again. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here and then they're gone, including our lives. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Y'all, please don't make too much of the things that you see, especially of the thing that you see staring back at you in the mirror. Please don't make too much of that. Make much of Jesus. Make much of eternity with him. Be grateful for what he's done for you, that you are saved, and that you get to look forward to an eternity with him forever and ever and ever in heaven. Let your focus be there. And thus, verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. If we are called to offer acceptable worship, y'all, that implies that there is unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship would be worship not accompanied by this gratitude and thankfulness. You come in with a discontent, a grumbling heart to worship the Lord. Worship that's not accompanied by reverence. That you come in flippantly that you come in with unconfessed sin rampant in your life, that you come in and you just go through the motions and mouth the words without thinking about what you're singing. Worship that is unacceptable is worship that is not accompanied by awe. Think for a moment about what amazes you. Where does God fall on that list? Luke chapter 5, verse 26 and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Because why? Because Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic and then raised him so that he could walk. They were amazed by that. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Why? Because they saw a blind and deaf man now able to see, a blind and mute man able to see and speak. Mark 1, 27 through 28. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the region surrounding Galilee. Y'all, do you realize that what Jesus has done for you is far greater than any of that? Any of that. Does that amaze you? Does that amaze you? Our God is worthy of worship, not as an afterthought. Look, you are not doing God any favors by being here tonight. He is not impressed with your presence. He is desirous of your affections because of what Jesus has done for you. We're going to sing a closer. We're going to sing that song that we sang a moment ago before the sermon, undivided heart. And I want you to think about this call here in this end of this passage. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
And I want you to sing this as an expression of gratitude. If you can, if you can, not hypocritically, but if you can, I want you to sing this as, as an expression of gratitude for what the Lord has done in your life and that you are in the new covenant because of Jesus. And then afterwards, we'll go to small group. I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come up. Lord, we confess that we don't feel enough thankfulness and gratitude for you on a regular basis. Because we also confess that we don't fully wrap our minds around or understand the enormity of what Jesus has done for us. But even what little we are able to comprehend, God, is enough to keep us thankful for the rest of our lives. God, make us people who have our minds set on how can we use our lives as an expression of worship to the Lord, even the things that hurt in life. How can I turn that around and make that about boasting in Jesus, making Jesus big and me small? Lord, we thank you that your plan is is so unified from beginning to end that even as you delivered the law, you were delivering the law conscious and mindful of the fact that Jesus was going to have to die for sins because all the law was going to do was show us that we are sinful people. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves with an impossible task. Be holy as I am holy. We can't do that, God, on our own. And thank you that you gave us Jesus. Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross in our place. What do we say to that? What do we do in response? You've called us to say thank you and to do what we're going to do now to worship you in reverence and in awe for all that you've done. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close out our times together, responding to the message we just heard.
Mr. Smothers.